Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck nicks? What the fuck ups? What the fucking Thanksgiving? All right, that was a stretch. I don't even know why I said that, because it is Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving uh, to all of you who uh, who listen to this show, and even to people that don't listen to the show. Not that they're going to hear that, but I want to wish a happy Thanksgiving to everybody. And I'm not so much hung up on the, uh, the holiday itself, because I know uh, where it comes from, where its roots are, but a day of gratitude in a general sense is always necessary. Uh, let me get into that in just a second. Let's do this uh, before I forget a couple of things. First of all, I will be in Seattle tomorrow night. That's Friday, November 25th, Black Friday at the Neptune Theater. If you still haven't got your tickets, I think there are some left. I don't know. If you are coming, bring cash if you want merchandise because I don't have my iPhone yet. I still haven't gotten it yet. It's probably sitting at home at, at, on my front porch waiting to be stolen. I hope so. I, I, I'm having someone watch the house. Perhaps it needs to be, it requires a signature. And I didn't just give somebody a Thanksgiving gift of an iPhone. By the way, Dr. Steve is on the show today. And I'm going to tell you something. I've known this guy for a lot of years. He's been through a lot of shit. And the reason we're talking to Dr. Steve today is that his journey with creativity, with having a dream, with having personal problems, uh, you know, psychological problems, drug problems, uh, and also some, uh, you know, the possibility for great success and having that crap out, fall away. And how do you fight through that? How, how do you transcend when everything collapses or when all, all things that you had thought were what you wanted and what you deserved go bad. It's a great story. He's a great guy. Musician, writer, now a psychologist, doctor, uh, PhD, Dr. Steve. So look, here's what I want to do, you guys. Uh, this is sort of new for the show. You, you know, I come from what I come from. Steve comes from what he comes from. He's a clinician. I'm a fuck up. Uh, I struggle. He has answers and he struggled. So I thought maybe if you're struggling with something him and I could talk about, we could talk about it on the show. So why don't you do this? If you have an issue that you think me and Steve could engage in, we're going to try a segment here and there. I don't know how many we'll do. We'll try at least one. Uh, send your issue and a little explanation to uh, WTFpod at gmail.com. Subject line, Dr. Steve. Let's try that. And we'll see if we can uh, have a segment like that. I, I'm into it with uh, Dr. Steve. But anyways, Thanksgiving. As I said, gratitude is not something that comes easy for me. And I have to, uh, I have to sort of force myself to feel it and acknowledge it. It's the right thing to do for yourself sometimes and also uh, to others. Uh, I'm always kind of propelled by my own momentum. I'm always in my own head. I'm always just rushing through things or thinking about something else. It's usually my biggest crime is that I'm thinking about something else when I should be locking eyes with somebody and saying thank you or acknowledging the work somebody's done or acknowledging the help that I've gotten in my life from other people and maybe thanking them for it or at least being present to acknowledge them for it. Uh, I, I have to do that. I, I don't. I, it's not innate to me. 
And certainly at this juncture, you know, two years and change into this podcast, I, ha- I owe an incredible debt of thanks to you for, for supporting the show. I'm glad you like the show. I'm glad you get something out of the show. And certainly to all the guests I've had on the show, uh, my community of comedians, uh, and, uh, and certainly it, it's changed my life. And, and you guys know from knowing me you know, what I've been through and what I go through on a day-to-day basis. I, you know, I share that with you and I am not the most grateful guy in the world. And, and I don't, uh, you know, I'm not as, as, as humble as I should be, but, but certainly whether or not you believe in Thanksgiving or not, you might as well take the opportunity to make a little, a little list one of those gratitude lists that they talk about in the secret society that I belong to. Because things are shitty for a lot of people. I mean, I've got people in my life right now. I've got people in my family who are struggling, you know, economically, uh, with employment, you know, with other issues. And and I talk to them and, and there's it, there's so little you can do to help somebody other than say, I understand. I'm sorry you're going through that. And also to let them know that they're not alone. I mean, this this person is is very close to me and he's having some difficulty. And I, I tell him it is not unusual right now to be struggling. Uh, there's a lot of people in this country who are struggling. There's a lot of people that don't see an end to it. And there's a lot of people that blame themselves. Look, the economy is not your fault. Uh, what's going to happen with it? I don't know. What your politics are, I don't know. But the point is, is that a lot of people are struggling it, desperately right now and it's not your fault this is not unusual this is a difficult time in the history of this country it's a difficult time for a lot of people and my fear is that a lot of people will blame themselves like why can't i get that job why can't i be a better you know parent why can't you well it all trickles down from that job thing i mean that's the scary thing is is that if you if you don't share this stuff and you don't realize that you're not alone then you're going to take it out on yourself. You're going to take it out on your kids. You're going to take it out on your family. You're going to get an attitude that is, is negative and defeated when you go in to try to get what you need to get to survive. And it's all going to blow up in your face. What you have to understand is that on this day or any day, your life can't be total shit. It just isn't. You're still alive and there are good things in it. You should write those good things down and say, okay, you know, this is something to start with. This is something where I can work from here. I'm grateful for these things. I'm not horrible. A lot of these things are not in my control. I can do what I can do, you know, in terms of what's in front of me and take the next step towards what I need to do. And that's what I can do. Don't sit there and look at the future and say you're fucked forever or look at the past and say like, well, that, that clearly is why I'm here and that's why I'm fucked. I mean, look, the past is what it is. You learn from it, make different choices. But all I want to say specifically uh, to people who are struggling economically right now and with jobs and, and with that type of thing, you're not alone. There's plenty of fingers to be pointed wherever you want to point them. But the bottom line is, you know, outside of blame, it's, it's not your fault. It's difficult times. We've gotten through difficult times together as a country, as a community, as families. You can do it and, and just know that. Don't, don't be too hard on yourself. Just adapt your life to the situation you're in now and live with that. So a lot of disappointment in life. A lot of times things don't work out the way you want them to. But instead of hanging on to that, to whatever your entitlement was or whatever you think you deserved, 
Try to adapt to what you have right now in the present. Be grateful for it. Don't be bitter. Try to move forward with, uh, with the knowledge that it, that it will get better and you're not alone. And I think this is a great segue to, uh, to my guest who, who went through a tremendous amount of disappointment. And, and, and he was a, you know, he's a creative guy. And he had a rock and roll dream. And, and his life has taken him through a, trem- a lot of curves and obstacles, both inner and outer. And he ended up, uh, you know, where he is now, you know, happy with a family, doing something he likes and helping other people. So let's talk to Dr. Stephen Danziger now and, and happy Thanksgiving. And, and even if it's not okay now, you're okay. No matter what you think. If you're alive and you're listening, there's got to be a way for you to see that you're okay. I'm sitting here holding a CD. Steve Danziger, Sensation Days. It's a solo CD. It's brand new. No, this is a solo CD. <laughs> 1996. It wasn't supposed to be solo. But uh, the record company claimed that there was another band called the Polanskis in London at the time. Polanskis. Yeah, that was the name of the band. That was the name of your band. Mm-hmm. So Steve Danziger is not, this is a band. No, in the end, it, I mean, it's a band the same way a lot of people are a band and they're just one guy. But these were guys that you were touring with? These were guys you were working these with? These are guys I was working with. One in particular, William Dial, I had been working with for a very long time since we were teenagers. So on the cover, you you have something almost it almost looks like dreadlocks, right? It's just out of focus, and it created this dreadlock image. So they're not dreadlocks. They're not. It's just long hair. Okay. Now this is 1996. Now you are a doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you recently became Doctor Steve. Some of you know. Uh, some of you guys who are listening know Steve from my show as Doctor Steve. We did some uh, stuff with him. But this wasn't the dream, Danziger. Not originally, no. It was not the dream. It wasn't the dream, but the fact is that the dream was that I would be able to communicate with people. Let's talk about. Let's talk about the. Uh, you want to talk about the dream that died, don't you? No, I. I just you know, I. A lot of people become therapists. Some people accuse me of it, mm-hmm. and I am in no way qualified uh for that it, it, but sometimes i you know when i have two or three interviews in here on a day it feels like i'm i have sessions going mm-hmm. i don't approach this as therapy but what interests me in in your story is that people become different things people evolve into different things mm-hmm. people find uh, a path for themselves and many people who start off in, in as artists or or as people who who choose a creative field uh, out of necessity, must choose something else. I find that that many people with uh, with broken dreams end up in the uh, massage therapy uh, racket, or depending on how broken they their dreams became, some of them end up born again Christians. I see two mm-hmm. trajectories. There's the the uh, the helping people through uh, perhaps uh, teaching yoga, uh, massage therapy, uh, perhaps some uh, you know you know minor witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I don't know I think if you would call those the holistic fields, the more spiritual oriented. And then the, there's some people that just go full on cult or born again Christian. But people who have a history like you, you know, you could have, um, you know, you're a sober guy, right? I am. Yeah. 
and you, you could have just went strict, uh, you could have went straight up uh, drug counselor mm-hmm. without the studying. Mm-hmm. You didn't do that. No. But let's go back to New York. Let's go back to New York City, the new American sound. <laughs> Actually, go back to the Hoboken sound of uh, 19, the 80s. The 80s. Well, I mean, you can go even further back, 1979. Uh-huh. 1978, 1979, uh, when I started working with Will Dial, uh, we were the responsible teenagers. That was the name of the band. We were called the Responsible Teenagers. Nineteen seventy nine. Seventy eight is when we formed. Seventy nine is when we played our first gigs. And like you're a drummer. CBGBs and Max's Kansas City. So who was uh, who was around then? I mean, what were you what were you up against? Who were the guys you were going? Fuck, man! I can't believe they hit. Well, actually, we we were sixteen years old, so we weren't thinking those thoughts quite. There are a couple other bands that were sixteen years old. We thought that, like mm-hmm. the Speedies. Oh fuck, the Speedies uh, kicked Mermaid your Speedies. ass. Yeah, sure, completely. <laughs> And what was your sound then? Uh, it was kind of a, a power pop, bordering on punk, kind of a, like a buzzcocks kind of a thing. It uh-huh. was we, we were we were in my basement, sort of doing you know Beatles covers and Searchers covers and all that kind of stuff, and 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 we got on the Uncle Floyd show. Do you remember the Uncle Floyd show? I I was not a East Coast person at that so time, but I, I, but I know of the Uncle Floyd right. show. And so all the bands of that time were, anyway, uh, Will's brother had a picture on the wall on the Uncle Floyd show. Uh-huh. And so we had an in. And so we ended up on the Uncle Floyd show. I think the Ramones were on the day before, you know, like that. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. You know, really nice. And so at, at that time, I thought we were kind of like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Oh, know? really? Because I literally was 16 and we were, from, you know, suburban kids. And, uh-huh. uh Ended up, playing cbs like you know minutes after that really yeah oh no no everything kind of took off in a little way so the heroes like you that means you were you where were you living well here, i'll give you an example i was uh, grew up on long island right i was going to manhattan all the time to see shows right and instead of going to my prom i went to see richard hell and the voidoids so that's so this is so, so that, this is 1976 77 mm-hmm. and then uh, so you're going into the city all the time mm-hmm. you're hanging out in front of cbgb's that's mm-hmm. the, that that's really the peak of american punk on the cusp of new wave absolutely so the ramones are playing mm-hmm. richard hell is playing verlaine's mm-hmm. there yeah. talking heads yeah. might have just broke mm-hmm. blondie, blondie just broke mm-hmm. what's left of david johansson and mm-hmm. uh, johnny thunders mm-hmm. is still hanging around see johnny thunders and the heartbreakers a lot you did yeah, yeah. Live, yeah. How was that? I thought you knew that about me. What I'm, I, look, dude. I what do I? I mean, I I picked up. You know with what you, you know. Well, no, I picked up with you around. I mean, the first time I met you was probably 2000 and uh, or no, it was probably 1999. Right. Uh, t- yeah, 1999. You were fucking. You know, on the the amount of of pure fucking anger that was peeling off of your being at that time was was impossible to deal with for me. I'm trying to remember just what that looked like and felt like. and I mean, I remember being an angry guy, but... But you just had this intensity. I'm sensitive mm-hmm. to it because I'm an intensity. We were in a car with a common friend mm-hmm. taking a mm-hmm. ride. It was the first time I met you. Mm-hmm. And this is my friend, Steve, and I sat there. Your hair was shorter. Uh, and uh, this, you know, this had been out, you know, three years already. Right. So, uh, and you were sort of done. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this, I think it was, I, I don't know how, how much you want to talk about, but I, you were sort of mythic to me because uh, you were a guy that, you know, in his, his sober life mm. was in a hospital. Mm-hmm. And I found that tremendously impressive. Mm-hmm. I, you know, at how, how much sobriety had you had by the time you went in the hospital? Uh, nine years. So you, now, okay, so let's go back to rock and roll. So now right. you're 16 and anything you don't, want, you don't want on here, you can take it out. Mm-hmm. You're 16 years old, you're fucking rocking. That's the dream. 
then it evolves. Well, it was it was it was the it was the dream, and at the same time, I got into University of Pennsylvania, so yeah. I went I went there. Yeah, and the rest of the band was actually still in high school, so they used to come to Philly, and we started playing at the Hot Club in Philly, and we had this sort of back and forth thing going because the manager of hot, the Hot Club was doing sort of like a. What, what would you call it? Like a, a home and home series. And yeah. he would get us better gigs at CB's than we did when we were a New York band. So right. we were considered a Philly band and we okay. played Saturday night. <laughs> yeah. It was a good deal. Uh, then I was a drummer, so I was kind of a mercenary. So I ended up playing with a lot of different people. And um, first I played on the first two King Missile records. Oh, I like uh, King Missile. The second and third King Missile records. Yeah. Uh, Jesus is, what was the one? Jesus is way cool. Jesus is way yeah. cool. And uh, what was the one about the detachable penis? Detachable penis, yeah. And uh, did you ever end up playing with, there was a whole crew down there, you know, Kramer and uh, mm-hmm. and that guy and that bunch who was, uh, what was her name? Ann Magnuson. Mm-hmm. Did you know them? I knew them a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I knew Kramer a lot and Ann a little bit. Yeah. And so you were playing, so that was sort of like, not really punk, not really pop, but sort of like, you know, arty. I don't know what you would call well, it. You know, it was, it was all the, the spoken word people. Right, right, That's right, who I was right. hanging out with. Uh, you know, John, John Hall from King Missile. Before King Missile, we had a band called You Suck, which yeah. was, the the idea was we'd be the worst band in the world and people would chant our name. And uh-huh. We had a song, kept, Get the Fuck Off the Stage, which we'd play by request. And Maggie Estep you knew? Maggie uh, as well. And Maggie I ended up in a band with. When um, she was on MTV? Did you yes. do that? Oh, that first album? What What happened was we had a band. Uh, I, I left music for a while. When I got sober, I stopped playing with King Missile. That was right when they got signed to Atlantic. Speaking of the dream, the dream came true. And I left the band because I didn't feel like I was going to stay sober if I stuck around at that time. So your band, this was not, uh, that was King Missile? That was King I? Missile, yeah. That, that first album? Yeah. I like that album. This, the, the second, th- they and Mystical Shit. Mystical the Shit two is the one I like. I on, yeah. I, I, you were on that record? Yeah, I'm on that record. I had no fucking idea. I was yeah. listening to that before I met you. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but your band, I mean, then there was this period where you guys would play ukuleles and shit, and you were playing a box or something? Well, oh yeah, that was, I did a lot of uh, different things with uh, alternative instruments. The one thing that I did for a long time was a band called Pianosaurus. And okay. We, we played rock and roll on toy instruments. Uh-huh. And, and that was your hook? Well, it was a hook, but the thing was that Alex Garvin, the songwriter, was a really great songwriter. And yeah. We, we were all very dedicated to playing the toys in a way that really made them sound like something. And we ended up sounding like something. We had, we, we're actually, we were on, uh, uh, not Arsenio Hall, but you know the pre-Arsenio Hall uh, version of Arsenio Hall. And we did, um, uh, I can't remember what other shows we did. We ended up on the, a lot of shows with Emo Phillips for some reason. <laughs> We'd yeah. be on the you know, same, yeah. same gig. And we, we toured, we toured everywhere. We, we toured with Alex Chilton for a while. Wow, you knew Alex Chilton? I did. Yeah. Nice guy? He was a, he was a nice guy at that time. You know, I heard he was kind of mercurial, but um, he kind of ended up being a real um, inspiration uh, to me. I mean, musically, I always saw him as someone I wanted to be like, and then sort of the way that underappreciated he and brilliant, exactly. <laughs> and and I and and just the way he held himself and the way the, the, his commitment to his you know his vision and the music that he played. And so. that was your music too? Were you a power pop guy as things yeah, evolved? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you have my CD there. I mean, it's it's a little all over the map. There's, I mean, there's obvious big star uh, influences, R.E.M. influences, but there's also like just straight ahead uh, bluegrass. Was there any of that business of uh, people taking you under their wing or saying, you know, you guys are good, you're going places like Chilton or, or Michael Stipe? Or, because it seems like it, by the time you made Sensation Days that, you know, the music had evolved into this more rootsy mm-hmm. uh, kind of, but poppy. But but there was sort of a, a reappreciation of American music mm-hmm. with REM and that kind of stuff. Yeah, no one necessarily took me under their wing. I, I was felt like I was kind of 
I was sort of like 10 years younger, five or 10 years younger than a lot of the people I was hanging out with. Right. Um, there was a time, for instance, you know, there's a lot of um, really weird aspects to my musical life, including when uh, Anton Fear broke up the Golden Palominos, but there were still some couple shows booked and Sid Straw really wanted to do them. So I'd played basically, you know, with Sid and um, Jody Harris and Peter Holsapple and the rest of the people who were doing Golden Palominos. And I just played a snare drum with brushes. Wow. Which was, you know, sort of what I was about at the time, which was I was drinking and taking a lot of drugs and, and you didn't, didn't mind just standing on stage with, with these people drum. with a snare drum instead of Anton Fear being up there like, you know, it's hitting the drums like Bonham. Well, it's interesting because like these bands, none of them are really, you, you know, the Golden Pound. Minos mean, aren't around anymore. I used to love, mm -hmm. I like Sid Straw's two solo mm -hmm. albums. I mean, they were very respected in that, that little world. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so you were wasted. Yeah, How that, bad did that get? It got pretty bad. I mean, there were, my story is around 86 or so. I think it was that I sort of, I decided to quit drugs, um, but I kept drinking. Mm -hmm. And so the drinking remained really bad. The drinking was always bad. And uh, I would say that, you know, a lot of a lot of the drinking was pretty responsible for everything kind of falling apart career wise. Although it was also it was a, it was a group effort with Pianosaurus. Alex, I don't know what he was doing, if he was smoking weed or taking a lot of hallucinogens, but he just had kind of like a, you know, his his brain tweaked. And he just before our second record was going to be put out, he just disappeared into the ether. So he said barreted Exactly. No shit. Yeah. It's too bad no, no one's at that stature. Of Sid Barreting, yeah. Like well, there, I don't know. There's anyone talking about what's his name, Alex? There, I mean, there are people talking about Alex. We had we had a little following. We have a Facebook page with like 150 people or something. Right now, <laughs> yeah, right now. Oh, all right. No, yeah, no, no. I, it really it made some waves. We we were in People Magazine. I don't worry. I didn't mean to be condescending. Um, it's okay. Please, anytime. No, um, it's wrong. Morning edition. We're a morning edition. All right. So okay. So this happened. So you decide to get sober, and 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 because of that, you you pulled back from music. Yes. As a matter of fact, I remember also, I hope this doesn't sound like a name dropping s session, but um, all right. But these are the people that were hanging around. Um, Freddie Johnston, when he was putting out, maybe Fuck, it was his I first record. Him. Yeah. He's still around. He's really, really well respected. He's like yeah, the John Hyatt singer songwriter. Yeah. But uh, he asked me to play on his record, and I was just like curled up in a ball, like trying to be sober. <laughs> I was like, I can't do it. Um, so I kind of stayed away from it for a couple of years. Was all that about the drink, or was it also about the, 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 the sort of fear of, not being creative or good enough with your natural ego and without the inflated ego of, of being fucked up and being in that scene. I mean, there was, you know, there was, there was some of that for me, probably not as much as for a lot of other people that I meet. And I, because in my therapy practice, I work with a lot of creative people. I do hear that story a lot. For me, I, I felt like when Piano Source broke up, you know, we were about to put our second record and like all these major labels were looking at us and, it was a lot had happened with the first record and the second record was a lot better so and it never came out a lot, some people do talk about you know where is that record and can we find it and I don't even so I think someone took it you know the, the masters in we the should ask Henry night. Rollins he seems to have a lot of shit he might know now, he, he, he might, might have it he might have it you know he's got he's the one who went in the middle of the night to water music in Hoboken and yeah it. and he took it I mean yeah. if somebody gave it to him Rollins has got a lot of shit so um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that there must have been a moment where you had to contextualize, you know, I I know about sobriety, and I know that you have to uh, you know put that first in order to stay sober. But there must have been a point where the heartbreak was tangible, where you felt this thing getting away from oh, you. Oh, to totally tangible. But I guess when when it happened was when Piano Source broke up. 
and that led to like the next three or four months of crazy drinking that led to getting sober. So that like the the dream was broken. Like I really thought that that was the thing. That that you were you're on the you were on the precipice of putting out a second album with a band that had a, a pretty good following mm-hmm. that had national attention right. and a lot of different outlets. And then you know there it was. It's in the can and yep. the shit hits the fan and you're just a drummer without a band. That's right. Not only that, I was the only toy drummer in the world, and all of a sudden. <laughs> There are no toy drummers in the world. I'm just another bozo on the bus. So it was a, a nightmare. With a toy drum. With a toy drum. I had a Muppet kit. I had a Smurf kit. I had a Menudo kit and nowhere to go. No one wanted to. No one else wanted me to. You Can know, we say that you're maybe those. one of the best toy drummers in the, in the country that's, at that time? That's what people told me after the show. Oftentimes. <laughs> I had to say, Mark, I'll show you. I'll find some video for you because people, no, I, I, there are some people who said time. it was like pretty incredible. We opened for Jonathan Richmond at at, uh, at Central Park Summer Stage. Yeah, that makes and, sense. And we always, exactly. And we always, uh, well, almost was, always. How was he as a guy? He, I didn't, didn't give, uh, he didn't give us much time. And you always what? You always. Oh, no, no. We, we almost always would smash our instruments at the end of the show because they were, you know, like for another yeah. 20 bucks, you go to Toys R Us, I got a new drum kit. And I used to travel with a lot of, you know, because the little bass drum pedals, they're like little plastic numbers yeah, yeah, and yeah. they'd break all the time. So I used to order from Noble and Cooley and the other companies, you know, like a hundred of them and just travel and break through them. But um, anyway, well, one of, like it was, this was toward the, towards the end and Alex and I were not getting along and. And he just kept saying, "We're not smashing the instruments at Central Park Summer Stage. We we need to have some dignity or something like that." You know, not I was, breaking the toys. Yeah, I was like, "You've got to be kidding me! Like, this is our hometown. This is yeah. you know, this is this is where we're really breaking the instruments." You yeah, know? I just remember we were you know finishing, and the last number, the last encore was Wipeout. You know, so yeah, I, I, I got a lot of feature in that. Yeah. and then at the end, Alex looked at me. He just looked back at me, and he was looking at me. You're not going to do it. And I just kept looking at him. I said, "Yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it." <laughs> I just, you know, lifted up the bass drum high above my head and uh-huh. smashed it. And, and that was it. And that was it. And he finally, well, he, he was just like, oh, I guess if you can't beat him, join him. And he started smashing his guitar. And uh, where's he now? Um, I don't, I, I have not seen him in 20 years. Really? I have not seen him. Or heard from him. Or heard from him. Like what, what the way I found out that we were broken up was like two or three weeks into his disappearance. Uh-huh. I ran into his mother in the street, you know, cause you know, he was a New Yorker and and I said, where's your son? <laughs> and she said, he got all your phone calls. And that was it. You know, that's when I knew. And then the record company kind of contacted all of us and was wondering what was up. And and then they said they weren't going to release the record. Cause, if you weren't going to tour with yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Wow. All right. So then there you are. There's a broken and took, dream for yeah, you. Yeah. And it took four months of hard drinking for mm-hmm. you to, you know, you drank yourself through this, your band breaking up. Mm-hmm. You couldn't find any other gigs. You didn't even try. Didn't want to. Just felt defeated defeated and and then you find yourself getting sober mm-hmm. so you let it go but did. you didn't because you put out sensation days. well without a couple of years into it and Mag- into sobriety into sobriety Ma- maggie Estep said uh you, you want to form a band for fun you know i just and she had uh, uh pat place who's in bush tetras back mm-hmm. in the 80s and uh when julie murphy plays with bush tetras now and um a friend of ours terry baker who's not playing anymore as far as i know or he might be he lives up in humboldt i think and uh, so we just started writing songs and we had no intention. We didn't play gigs. We didn't do anything. We were just goofing around. And that was my big transition in terms of like the whole what had happened to me through the drinking and the drugs and everything else and just sort of what it did to my mind around, you know, my love of music actually turned into like, wow, as a drummer, I get free drugs and free alcohol and mm-hmm. women will look at me faster. Mm-hmm. And and that became really primary above the music or that's what it felt like by the end that that's what had gone on mm-hmm. 
so that two years kind of clarified for me or kind of like drained that out of me a bit. Right. And then playing with Maggie, I just really was digging it. I was really enjoying playing. You enjoyed playing. playing drums. It was fantastic. And I, you know, I was like, oh, wow, I actually have good time when I'm, not a good time, but good time, keep good time when I'm. So there was no pressure. You realized you had this talent. You loved it from you when you were a kid. It was something you always wanted to do and you were good at it. Mm-hmm. So it felt good to do it. Yeah. And then you put this record together. Yeah, I put that record together. Did it start label support? Yeah, it had a small label support, and it had, um, it was uh, the result of songwriting that started a a year or two into sobriety. I started writing songs. Mm -hmm. You know, so I I started doing that. And um, I actually put out a single early on. on, it was called The Ballad of John Parker. It was about this guy who I uh, helped do needle exchange. He was mm-hmm. like one of the early needle exchange guys. Yeah. So it was a folk song. Yeah. It was just me and Will, acoustic guitars. And uh, Steve Fallon from Maxwell's and Hoboken and Bob Mould and uh, uh, maybe a couple other guys had a little label and they put out this single. And, and it actually got some attention. And, and then I just kept writing songs and eventually I started playing gigs with the band that's on the record. Okay. And so that's 96. Then finally by 96 it came out. So it's more like, you know, 93, 94, 95 like that. Well, by the time I met you, you had you you, you this wasn't going anywhere. Oh yeah. Oh, the the story behind how it didn't go anywhere is another so it's one of the stories behind the hospital. Okay. You know, it's it what happened was it you know, it had pretty good support, you know, from the label, etc. and and I have like great musicians on it, etc. and what happened was Right around when it was going to come out, um, I got like uh, some kind of bronchial infection or something like that. And we mm. didn't cancel like all the record release stuff. So I ended up, I did a record release party at Sinead Cafe and then I did another record release at J&R Music World, you know, yeah, yeah, appearance, yeah, all that. I had a great band, the band that's on the record, but the drummer was J.D. Doherty from Patti Smith Group. And um, You didn't play drums? I didn't, I didn't, I I would. I played drums on the record. Right. Know? Yeah. And, and you I, fronted the band. And I fronted the band. Um, at times, I would uh, sing from behind the drums. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I was starting to front the band. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I literally, I couldn't. I, I wasn't hitting notes. Like I was like, it sounded like uh, in the Brady Bunch, you know, when, yeah, uh, when your his voice, voice changes. Was cracking, and change. Yeah. And it was just amazing. It was so awful. Like you know, because it was oh, everyone was there. You know, like all my friends. Oh God. All, all the people. And then at the JNR Music World, I thought it got worse. Like I had like 102. I was like hallucinating. Um, and the label was there. And, and they're and just staring at me like, what the? F-? And you're sober, so you're feeling it all. Oh, feeling it all. I'm, I'm thinking. Looking did, at did, shocked faces. Yeah. Oh. It was so bad that there's a third record release event that I can't remember what it was. I was at 104 fever. Yeah. And that was it. They just like basically canceled all of their plans for tour support and stuff like that and i had a a booking agent who was you know booking i think like wilco and matthew sweet and all those people at the time who was you know really digging it you know really liking the record yeah and he was but he said you know i'm I'm due to lose money for the first two years that you're on tour no matter what i do so i really need your label to put up this tour support right and i just begged and begged and and it just didn't happen You, you told them you were sick I told him I was sick. I said, you know, look, you've already, you know, the package is really nice, you know. Yeah, it CP looks really, and everything. Yeah. It's a nice looking CD. I'm like, Don't, let's not stop here. And they just sort of changed, you know, they, they lost interest. They they went on to other things. And where are the CDs? Oh, there's 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 some copies in a storage unit in Brooklyn. Well, how many are we talking? About three to 4,000. 
<laughs> there are some people who have them, but uh, and you can go on Amazon. You can find them for like you know Steve like Danziger, ninety nine cents. Uh, Sensation Days is the name of the CD we're talking about. <laughs> So now this happens. Yeah, this You're happens. You're a few years sober. Right. So this just kills it. So now, it? so now the dream has died and completely. I'm sober. And but but and, this was a second wave. I mean, this is you coming into music with a new love for it. Mm-hmm. You're sober. Mm-hmm. You've done this beautiful record that you put a lot of time in that came out of pure joy of playing music. Sure. But but you, you knew in the middle of that once the record happened, you felt that old thing again. Like oh, it's going to happen. Yeah. Right. We're gonna. You know, this is going to go a little bit. Well, the, and not only that, I was doing that, and at the same time, I was playing drums with maggie yeah right and then we broke up we you know, we broke up at some point just because we were done having fun and then she did the mtv stuff yeah and then she got the record deal then and you played on that exactly so yeah. she's like she put the band back together because she figured a spoken and this is after this is after sensation days this is around the same time okay yeah around the same time so you're still playing yeah and you're making money mm-hmm Playing yeah. drums. And I'm making money playing drums. And you toured with her? Yep, toured with her. We did a number of different tours. We did a, a one sponsored by MTV. It was on MTV Unplugged. It was spoken word artists. It was Maggie and so John. They, and so, so no one's letting your dream die? Not yet. Uh-huh. Don't worry. Uh-huh. That comes now. What? So Maggie, we, we uh, tell me if this sounds familiar after the, the beginning of the interview, but Maggie, after the first record was done, we wrote the second record. We pretty much, we hadn't recorded it, but we had demoed everything mm-hmm. and all sorts of people supposedly were interested. Uh, Rick Rubin was interested. Yeah. Uh, all this stuff I remember when happening. she was a thing. Yeah, she was a thing. Yeah. And so she got a book deal. And, you know, I love Maggie dearly. But back then, what what happened was she's like, wow, writing books is so much easier. There's only one person and, you know, you don't have to deal with all this kind of like mm. relationship stuff around the band. Yeah. And so she broke up the band just like that. God. So that happened around Damn. the same time that that was, was coming apart. So it was like a double whammy. It's like, go ahead and try and be a songwriter. Go and try try to be a drummer. Sorry, you can't have either one. Yeah. Yeah. Have a nice day. Uh-huh. And then? Hope you have a day job. And then, well, did you have a day job? I did. Well, I had, I at the time, so that's, what I was doing at the time was, um, you know, very early in sobriety, I, I started teaching high school. Oh, right. And I was teaching high school at in Crown Heights. When the Crown Heights riots happened, I ended up getting involved in the aftermath in trying to, you know, in the healing of the neighborhood, et cetera. Got very, got trained by a lot of nonprofits and in healing neighborhoods in healing in in, in the healing what had happened around the right that, well that's interesting so that but i've forgotten about that that you spent years doing that proactive you know in class high school you know don't be bully kind of stuff what, mm-hmm. what is really what is that called exactly well it's called a lot of different things because i did a lot of different things back then it was mostly called diversity training uh-huh. or it was called you know a lot of the work was in conflict i did anger management i did conflict resolution I did prejudice reduction work, um, uh, and then you know, right now it's you know a lot. It's, the focus is what, on bullying, but you know, what, what is kinda, prejudice? What, how does that play out? Prejudice reduction work. Like, well, what's the situation? Like, let's say Crown Heights. Okay, well, th- there's different situations when there's there's a flashpoint. That's very different. You know, that's like you know, that's the ER with that kind of work. Most of the work that. I would do. So, is, is there is there actually like a triage situation? Like this guy's hopelessly racist. <laughs> Bring in the next case. <laughs> Something like that. You know, you're you're not doing a lot of one on one work in uh-huh. that way. Yeah. You're dealing with groups of people, yeah. and like I, there were times where 
there were a couple times where I was sent into a school and we weren't given sufficient information. Yeah. And it would just be, it would be chaos, you know, like, because. What kind of school? Like, what do you mean chaos and what Well, way? the chaos Between. would be, you know, like the kids weren't told why they were coming into this workshop. Was and, it mixed? Was it blacks and whites? And yeah. Oh, it, we've, I've done all kinds of, the, I've done it in homogenous situations. But I mean, I've but Crown Heights in, was blacks and Jews. Okay. Well, with the Crown Heights. Um, I was teaching a school, you know, Crown Heights is the Orthodox, is the Lubavitcher, yeah. so they, they're in their yeshivas. Yeah. So um, the work that I was doing was, you know, related to Crown Heights in as much as it involved all those kids there. And we did some work where we were working with the Rebbies and, uh -huh. you know, and, and bringing people together. And, and that was great. It was around the time when um, Anna Devere Smith did... Uh -huh. um, her multiple character right, did show. The, the show, which yeah. was fantastic. I'm sorry, I'm spacing on the, right. the name. So I was working with, uh, the school that I worked at was uh, mostly uh, African-American, Latino, uh -huh. um, a lot of um, kids from the Dominican, from Haiti, yeah. you know, et cetera. So it was more sort of a, an overriding, you know, like, let's look at this idea of racism. Let's look at this idea of pre prejudice, stereotyping, discrimination, et cetera, and see what it means to you, kids, and then see what solutions you come up with. So what, what came out of that whole time, m more than anything, was the development of, of a peer training program that we put together, where the idea was you know, trying to build a sort of a, a foundation of some leadership amongst students themselves to go out and then work with their peers on these issues. So the adults were, see, were seeing ourselves more as facilitators of the process for the kids who are gonna be the leaders. Um, but at the same time, sometimes as adults, we kind of you know, we drop in. <laughs> and, and from doing this type of work, what did you find was the most common theme uh, at the core of of racism in this situation with kids of different races? I think the the common theme is that in in some ways that class is actually one of the biggest factors. Um, there's a class, gender, and uh, sexual orientation. Like those were kind of the things that that uh, really plagued a lot of young people, whether or not they had you know sort of racist ideas. And a lot of times, like I I, I remember uh, class in, in what way that they were they were they were uh, um, predestined to be poor or stuck in a bad situation uh, financially or. No, because uh, I, wor I worked with a lot of kids from a lot of different, what you would consider a lot of different classes. And I just think that a lot of- So it went the both way, ways. Yeah, exactly. The way that people sort of responded to each other in an ist kind of way, you know- Had to do with- uh, had to do with socioeconomic. Uh-huh. And, and at the same time, I found that, um, you know, the, you know, sort of the, the ideas that, you know, especially back then, you know, that um, white- white people had about racism. Like I remember, I, I remember in particular, like uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but uh, there was a Skidmore uh, college study that said something like, uh, you know, uh, 40, uh, it was like 35% of uh, African-Americans thought that the, the race situation, uh, black and white particular, was fine now. And you know, like eighty-five percent of whites <laughs> thought that it was fine. Now, so I kind of saw a lot of um, sort of uh, naivete and just sort of you know, not—I don't want to say ignorance because that's it has so much connotation to it. But there was just a lot of people kind of walking around who didn't seem to really understand just how much uh, racism and the other isms have kind of infiltrated kind of the way we treat each other. 
So you're doing this type of work. You're evolving into this type of thinker. You got yes. hand, you know at the time that your your music career is just in shambles. You feel a second wave of heartbreak and your sobriety around your music career. But you're you're doing hands-on work, helping kids, helping communities, and and sort of building your own uh, wisdom uh, around how to to heal. Mm. Uh, and 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 then you end up hitting the wall again. Yeah, the the wall that I hit, I think, was. The combination of the musical heartbreak and kind of a um, a burnout around the other work, mm-hmm. like I just I I I had nothing left. And how did it manifest itself? It manifested itself in a in a in a deep depression, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it just uh, didn't get better. And you didn't think it was chemical, or you, you saw that you saw it had a foundation, but you couldn't get out of it. Right. And, and I was open to the thought that it was chemical because it, that I had been depressed in the past. You know, it's hard to tell, you know, a lot of people, especially come into my practice, you know, if they come in and they're actively addicted to something, it's going to be a while before they clear up enough to see, you know, if the depression bone's connected to the beer bone. Right. So with me, I think, you know, uh, you know, as a kid, I remember having those moods. And sure. I remember, you know, going down the tubes, but I was drinking and using, you know, from the age of 12. So, And also you know, you'd chosen a pursuit that was, was ripe with, uh, you know, a sort of sense of grandiosity, mm. that there was no way, you know, on some level, you, you know, when you enter a creative field mm-hmm. with the the ambition of being a star, which mm-hmm. is really at the core of it, mm-hmm. that the, the possibilities, you know, you kind of, you have blinders on to any other kind of normal existence. Mm. So the the possibilities for for heartbreak and depression are pretty big, yeah. Because now, yeah. So you end up in this hospital. Yeah, I end up in three hospitals. Thank you. Oh, good for you. Yeah, well, I good. did a little tour yeah, of the neighborhood. That's very good. Yeah, I did a uh, Lenox Hill. Yeah, was where I started. <laughs> yeah. Um, <sighs> Yeah. Crowd goes wild, <laughs> um, and actually, at the time when I got there, yeah, um, they were at the forefront of like using ECT as a first. What is line. that? Oh, uh, electroconvulsive therapy. Oh, so electroshock. Back. back. It's back. It's back. Yeah. It's still back. It's it's actually it's it's very in vogue, uh-huh. and um, you know, and, and actually in very 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 intractable cases, it sometimes is helpful like you know when someone is just rejiggers the wiring and it's not the same as you is cuckoo's nest is it it's i mean well it's you know it's not all that different you know i mean what happened was i i did you get it i did not it was funny because uh did they offer you a lobotomy they didn't know no offers of a lobotomy Uh but they the the ect they actually were trying to get my family to kind of buy into i think they like they gave my parents a Mm. uh, a video like ect and you you know like trying to get them to like maybe press the issue a little bit with me because whatever like i said they were kind of using it as a frontline therapy yeah the other thing was that when i got there they 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 told me or the the doctor sent me there he told me that uh they uh there were a lot of professionals there. You know, yeah. I'd be with, you know, doctors. Sure, there's people like cops you here. And, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. right. So I got there. We really want to use this machine. And there was a doctor, <laughs> well, there was a doctor there, right? Yeah. There was, there was a doctor and a cop and yeah. they weren't lying. Yeah. And then the doctor got ECT and, and he, you know, he, they rolled him, you know, they rolled him in before uh-huh. and they rolled him in after and his hair was like out in seven different directions. I was like, man, I am bummed, but I'm not doing Did that. Did Chief smother him with a pillow? Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh man! And lift the sink? No, yeah, no, it didn't happen that way for me. I, I wasn't so lucky. It's right, so Lennox Hill. That's round one. Lennox Hill, and then I left against medical advice because I, I was just freaking out in there. The next place I ended up, okay, this was I was living in Williamsburg, and um, I ended up being taken to Woodhull Hospital, 
which the social workers in New York City, they call it the hole. Mm-hmm. And it is taken. You, know, you mean you, someone had to say, we're leaving yes, now? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you were doing what? Um, I had a little sort of a kind of a, uh, I tried to hurt myself. Uh-huh. Yeah, I tried yeah. to hurt myself. Uh-huh. So um, they they took me there, and um, it's 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 diabolical. <laughs> it's diabolical. I I actually hesitate to even start to say the like words woodhall. Fecal matter and people wandering the halls, sort undressed. of undressed. Yeah, the, the 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 horrible thing that we would picture of the worst kind of mental uh, facility. Thank you for saying it, uh-huh. so I don't have to. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's exactly what it was. Uh-huh. It was it was it was really demented. Uh-huh. And there were like six wards, and I was in ward six, and supposedly that meant you were the most you know You're, out there. Oh God, um, meet any good people. I met some good people that I still have relationships with today. Wait a second. I'm thinking of something else. No, I did not make any good relationships there. It was a lot of revolving door stuff going on there. Uh-huh. I was there for two weeks. Uh-huh. And, um, it, it, Were you calling him or did you just get concerned? What, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was calling people. Yeah. I was calling people from Dude, in there. Get me the fuck exactly, out of here. You know, and, and a lot of people were like, no, we're not going to get, you know, like I, no one knew what to do with me because uh-huh. that's how, you know, it got deep. It was, yeah. a, it was a depression with psychotic features. Like yeah. I was really having a hard time and um i kept going to the mental don't ever if look people out there if you're ever going to go to the mental hospital don't go on a friday don't go on the weekend because the regular people leave and they have like this shift that you know it's sort of like they're just holding on to you and seeing if they can man crothers will let you drink it's it's really not a place you want to be on a weekend Uh so uh it was memorial day weekend that i ended up in 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 woodhull and Lenox Hill was in April, and then I ended up in St. Vincent's, which I think is closed. And St. Vincent's- At least it's in the city. It's in the, still in the city. That's yeah. right. I'm in the village now. <laughs> I've, I've, left, I've left like Bushwick, and yeah. I'm in, I'm in right the village. Down, so I got yeah. a, better, a better address than Williamsburg. Yeah. So there I was there for three weeks, and that was where uh, a good friend of mine, I remember, um, Josh Corda. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know him. Mm-hmm. He's a- uh, uh, if you know Dharma Punks, Noah Levine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, yeah, I know Levine. I was going to interview him. Okay. Well, Josh, Josh runs his sangha mm-hmm. in New York now, mm-hmm. and uh, he's someone I've known for a really long time. I knew him from my drinking music days. Anyway, uh, he was one of the people who visited me, and he said to me, after, you know, in retrospect afterwards, he said, mm-hmm. "When I left that visit, I really believe, you know, like I thought you were one of the lost ones, like you weren't coming back." And that's that's really how bad it was. And I remember thinking, I I, I don't remember the last time I've had a positive future-based thought, you know. Um, so in that three weeks, they here's the other thing is, this particular run, there was no more room in like the 20, 30, 40-something wing. So they put me in the geriatric psych ward. Mm. So I was in the psych ward with like, you know, 60, 70, 90-year-old people. The, well, the one thing about that is though, you, at least you, you realize that you can still have energy at that age. Yeah, energy to poop all over my room. And, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, no, seriously, that happened once. And, oh, um, no. There's one guy who used to take a leak outside, it, like he was marking the rooms. It was, uh. it was, it was, again... Uh, another recommendation don't do that either yeah um, geriatric psych ward yeah especially if you're young so now when you got out when did you find uh, the Buddhist uh, path well I had you know I had been on the Buddhist path already I hadn't uh, maybe given it my best I, I, I guess what happened when the depression hit and you come from middle class Jews like me right exactly I'm a Jubu yeah yeah and yeah, it's so law. when when did you find? Because I mean, by right the time- after right after so, right, uh, I got sober in '89. Uh, yeah, and early '90, a friend of mine took me to a an AA retreat at a Zen monastery, 
And so, uh, you know, they, they give you the option if you really want to hang out with the monks and see what that was all about. Uh, you could do it if you didn't want to, no big deal. And I was just totally fascinated. And then I got my first uh, lesson in meditation, which was uh, given to me by a like a six foot five Swiss German. I don't know if he's Swiss German. There were lots of Swiss Germans up there, but uh, he was this guy who I think was like the biggest speed dealer in uh, San Francisco in the '60s. And now he's a monk. Anyway, he uh, he said uh, zazen, which is uh, you know Zen meditation. He says zazen, sit down, shut up, don't move. That was it. That was all I said. And that's what I've been doing pretty much for the last 20 years um, is I sit down, I shut up, and I don't move. But it didn't save you. Well, he, here's the thing. That, that, that's that's the, the, the beauty and the tragedy of life and the spiritual life and kind of like the reality of, I think, you know, mental illness or whatever you want to call it is that, you know, it's a process <laughs> and it's, it's got its ups and downs. And, and I couldn't access it. You know, I couldn't uh, – when I hit the depression – I couldn't, no matter what I did, I couldn't access it. Couldn't get out from under it. Just, it was so beyond oppressive that any tool that I had or any sort of idea that I had of how the world worked or, you know, what it was that was going to quote unquote save me uh, was just out the window. So it did save me in that when, what what happened was while I was at St. Vincent's, I reached out to Julia Murphy, who I mentioned earlier, and Josh, I think, and I said, I think I might get better. It was the only thing that I said might do it. I said, I think I might get better if I go live at the monastery for a while. And so they both kind of like heard that, you know, their alarm bells went off. And there was one psychiatrist at St. Vincent's too said to my family, uh, this is the only thing he said that has been positive at all has yeah. any hope right. so they all helped me you know i was like faxing documents to the to the monastery um from the psych ward and they're like you know they're a monastery you know so they get they get people who are like already flying high in their spiritual practice etc and you got people who are, who are hurting and so they were you know they weren't oh really you're from mental hospital all right and they also knew it was kind of weird my friend uh sagan ed glassing who's uh you know, wonderful monk, he, uh, and a good friend for the last 20 years, he um, had just come back from Japan. He had spent like the last three and a half years or so in Japan uh, at a monastery there. And he came back and the first thing they handed him, they're like, here, you handle this. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, it was just like, he was like, he kept looking at it over and over and over again. It's like, that's his name, but how, how could this be, you know? Um, and so I got up to the monastery and um, the short version of the story is that 21 days later, 21 days later, I had like an experience that, you know, kind of uh, uh, imploded, exploded, etc. the depression, you know, like it wasn't like I was just sitting down, shutting up and not moving. I was doing a lot of work, you know, spiritual work. Like what does that look like? Well, what it looked like was, you know, a, a hell of a lot of meditation and it looked like, um, you know, sort of mindful work out, you know, out and about. Um, what you mean like gardening? It wasn't, it was some gardening. There was some, you know, it was just whatever was in front of me. Right. You know, it was just sort of uh, getting used to like, uh, you know, mopping the floor and having that be like. Humbling a service. Thing. Mm-hmm. And that's a big Zen. The Zen, Zen, Zen people are really into cleaning things. <laughs> so there's a lot of cleaning going on. Are they into like, cooking? Because I think I'm Zen with that shit. Yeah, very, very much into cooking and to the, the Zen of cooking and, and preparing food in a certain way that I think you would really appreciate. Um, you know the uh, the the Tenzo the cook up there at the time, 
um, he he actually ended up writing a book called Three Bowls, mm-hmm. you know, because the way the food is served, it's in three bowls, and the the portions are kind of right and eaten silence. And so, and, the, so what's happening then to you is that there's no past to beat yourself up about. There's no future that 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 is that is uh, that you're manufacturing to beat mm-hmm, yourself up about, mm-hmm. and you somehow manage through mindfulness and meditation to get into a presence or a present. Where where the tasks at hand were fulfilling enough for you to get some distance from the depression. Yes, and combined with, uh, there were 21 residents up there at, at that time. And one of them was like this yoga teacher who had been teaching yoga for like 20, 30 years, something like that. And so she just sort of took me on as kind of like a private case. Um, there was a monk there who had had a PhD in psychology from mm-hmm. the University of Vienna. I thought that was you know close enough to the source. Smart guy. And he was really a smart guy and sweet guy. And he was really helpful. Jungian? Um, I would say he was a Jungian, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there were a number of other people, you know, a couple of people who turned out to be friends, you know, who I was able to, you know, sort of just relate to in that in that way. And so a combination of all those things and then working with the Zen master, you know, and 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 doing the work around that. And the the way that the fever broke, like the the day the fever broke, the way it broke was I was sitting on the cushion and sort of, you know, going through what I was going through at the time, which was some really dark, you know, thinking. And suddenly I had a thought um, that came out of nowhere. I mean, obviously from somewhere, but um, that said, you know, maybe when I'm done with the stay at the monastery, I'll teach kids how to do this meditation thing. And that was the first thought that I had had in months that indicated that I would have a life in the future. And so what happened was this wave of thoughts came after that, like, oh, that means I have a life. That means maybe I'll have an apartment and maybe I'll blah, 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 blah. And you know, my friends will be back and et cetera. And maybe there'll be a woman in my, you know, like all this stuff and all that came stuff over happened. me. It did. And, and I remember what happened was we, during the walking meditation, I grabbed one of my friends and I dragged him into the bathroom, you know, where all the monks go, you know, to be able to talk. <laughs> I was like, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, you know. And, and he's like, I, I knew you were okay. You know, like no, no one really got it up there. You yeah. Because there was there's so much silence. and so Right. Much, they didn't realize the, uh, the hell you were living <laughs> the hell in. I was in, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> They're really... like, I thought you were a little kind of unhappy. Yeah. Intensely but... quiet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, so so you get out of that and you start, you know, working with the. You're still working with the high school kids. You're still staying sober. And and I met you around 2000. I guess what what was it? 2001, 2002. I don't want to jump ahead, but yeah. to get to the sort of you know the final, you know, you know, turn of the screw for you was was you know you you had literal heartbreak, mm. you know, based around a relationship with a woman. Mm-hmm. And that's you know that's when I met you. I mean, I hadn't seen you in a couple of years, and mm-hmm. we're out in L.A. And you come out to L.A. Mm-hmm. with her. I know her. Uh, you guys are wild and in love, and she's wild, and then that fucking hits the fan. Yeah, like well, p- practically on contact with Los Angeles, it hit the fan. Well, you guys met in New York because I remember yeah. you were playing guitar again. You guys were writing funny songs. I mean, I I know what that feels like. I know the elation of of new love, mm-hmm. and and that you know you were all lit up, and I was happy for you. But there was a little bit of concern mm-hmm. on my part. Mm-hmm. Legitimate. And, yeah, Legitimate and sure enough, concern. you guys come out to L.A. And I literally, I can't remember, within months, I mean, you, you know, you were like, I got nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this fucking hit the fan. Mm-hmm. You're on my couch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm looking at you and I'm like, oh, there's a lot of darkness on that couch. What the fuck is he going to do? Yeah. And then you moved in in some freaky situation. Yeah, I, I more <laughs> a couple of different freaky situations, yeah. What was that one where you were living in that room in that house? Yeah, yeah, very Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, you were living with some you know, rich widow, or mm-hmm. 
And I remember going to visit you there, and you were writing a book, and mm-hmm. you had your you had your fucking uh, you know you know Buddha shrine there. Yep. And you were doing the meditation, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm still looking to you for help, but mm-hmm. I felt like you know, well, maybe I'm helping him too. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he wrote a book about your life, about a lot of what we talked about. Yeah. So here you are, you know, after you finally process your life and you go through all of these horrendous things and in, in, in these challenges, you know, letting go of the creative dream and then you know, sort of getting your shit together after a complete mental breakdown. You didn't know what the fuck you were going to do, mm-hmm. and you wrote this book, and that didn't go anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. More. But you wrote it. I wrote it. It was yeah. very diligent work. Mm-hmm. And then, bam, you're like, you said, you know, I'm, I'm going back to school. Yeah. The the thing that led to that was I kept I kept doing the diversity work, you know, in different forms and yeah. fashions. And then uh, I met someone here in L.A. who was doing uh, substance abuse prevention and intervention education for young people. And, and they, they it was an organization that did it in schools all over the world. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, you know how do I get that job? And so I, um, you know, I interviewed and I got the job. And so I started doing a lot of traveling. And what I saw happening was that I ended up trying to be helpful to kids, you know, one step further than the education. You know, like I ended up referring a lot of people to treatment. And you know, kids were confiding in me. And I think this happened to all the teachers, but for me, it was, it was so connected to the work that I did. Uh, in education became more like a lot more individual and coaching and, Mm -hmm. you know, really, you know, closer to therapy than anything else that, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd ever done. So, so that's what kind of, you know, that got me back on my feet. You know, that gave me, uh, you know, a job that really like, you know, fed me. And the other other thing about that is that I always, I really did always feel that teaching, you know, at least the way that I teach is very creative. And, you know, so, at the same time that I would always like have the the creative dream is dead and now I'm a teacher at the same time I was always like I'm really being creative here and I had to come up with new ways and and there's a selflessness to it it doesn't revolve around the ego of being a star Mm -hmm. of being recognized Mm -hmm. of being uh, applauded for uh, for your rock and roll Mm -hmm. man that's right so, like, in a sense, it's sort of like I've always said about politics is that, you know, the unsung heroes are those that are working on a grassroots level and a community level. People don't acknowledge them. So you get all these people bloviating, but you get people who are out there doing the real work, you know, with individuals in schools and stuff. So you're doing that around the world. I remember you're flying everywhere. You know, right. You're always in uh, these hotels and going to schools to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that led to uh, going back to school. Yeah, and then I was, I, I was, I want to do something more with this, and I want to learn more. And the other, the other big, big thing that sort of drove me further and finally into that direction was my therapist in New York, uh, Simon Eccles, who passed away a couple of years ago, and he kept telling me, and he was a very creative guy. He was the son of a pig farmer in West Virginia and a schizophrenic mother, uh-huh. you know, who eventually went on to like, you know, be a country singer, an opera singer, an interior designer. I think he was a, an assistant to John and Yoko for a while. And then he uh, became a therapist. Huh. And so he was a really, really amazing person. Influence. Yeah. And he basically kept telling me that I should do this, that I should be a therapist. And he kept telling me that it was a creative field and he kept telling me how he was creative you know with it and the more that i listened to him the more that i realized that it was true and it was funny because a lot of the time he was telling me that i was in the midst of a lot of my like my creative dream is dead you know it just kept on kind of pounding at me and finally i i kind of relented and and went to school and i you know i haven't i haven't looked back at all 
you know, I mean, now it's sort of, you know, the creativity piece, it's, it's funny because I have like so many like stories that kind of circulate in my mind of really humiliating experiences. Yeah. And then I've got to, and, and then I, if I want to, I can conjure up the ones that were really, you know, wonderful, productive, you know, fantastic, you know, um, stories as well. But now I kind of feel like I've got a combination of everything. Like when I was teaching, I felt the reason I started teaching was I wanted to do something where I'd be engaged for eight hours a day Yeah, that was meaningful to me and felt like I was doing something. Right. And that that's something I really wanted to give myself. And now as a therapist, I'm absolutely giving that to myself. And at the same time, I can be doing things like sitting here with you. I can, you know, uh, play with my wife's band. I can. Well, that's the interesting thing is that you ended up with a, 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 a with a, a beautiful wife who is also, you know, sober and been through her own shit. You have a lovely child now. And, uh, you know, your family man and she's got a band. And, and that was what sort of provoked me to have a longer conversation with you hmm. was there's this this moment where I don't remember what it was you said, but I felt a little bit of that sort of like there was a little bit of a nag of 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 like, you know, I, you know, I, 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 I miss a rock and roll mm-hmm. and that that there was that moment where it was sort of like, you know, that was really it's a heartbreak uh, of 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 adulthood. Mm. In some ways, in the sense that, you know, what a lot of us forget is that we're, we're, we're kind of prepared to, to process disappointment and there's no way around it uh, as you get older mm-hmm. and, and then contextualizing it or putting the shit into perspective. And that I feel like there, there is, a, if you're a creative person, there's, there's an, an inherent sadness uh, that, that doesn't just come from like, you know, I was never good enough or anything else, but, but the feeling of pursuing you know, something that is creative and a long shot and wanting to be acknowledged. That's a childish thing. The, the, the desire to be acknowledged for creativity, I think, mm-hmm. is, is it's not infantile, but it's sort of look at me-ish. Mm-hmm. But, but the, the romance of, 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 of succeeding in that is, 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 is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. You know, for a lot of people, and I and I sort of heard a little of that, and I'm like, well, how does he handle that? Because mm-hmm. I I've, I've been through different stages of that, and myself, and I know a lot of people that listen to me because of the emails I get, you know, around you, you know people like you're inspiring me to be creative, or I used to do this, I used to do that, but there is a way to integrate it into your life uh, in a way that's healthy that you should be able to enjoy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of feel like all the humiliating experiences. And all of the triumphs are available to me and I can use them as fodder for for helping other people to get through. Like I don't necessarily sit in a therapy session and start, you know, telling them about how, you know, Evan Dando, uh, when I was opening for Jeff Buckley, um, heckled me mercilessly to the point where I just wanted to kill myself on stage. Um, you don't bring that up? I don't bring <laughs> I bring that up with you here and and then pretended backstage that he had hadn't done it. Um I bring that energy. Like I have I have that experience. Like I really have that experience and and I feel like that those kind of experiences and the experience of the up the, the fact that when you're a creative and you're in the creative endeavor, you're like engaged, you're in it and then the rest of life feels so boring so meaningless this is the experience that i hear yeah. a lot of people talking about i mean that's something that that people need to learn how to you know 
to feel that excitement about the regular life, about the regular responsibilities. That's that's integrating them. That's what I feel. And I mean, what, that's what, what I feel makes me happier now. Well, what do you what What are the primary um, what are the themes, if you can be in a general way, that you see pri- mostly in your practice now? Uh, in regards to creative I mean, people and well, their struggles? Well, or? I mean, just in general. I mean, you know, what what do you find you're being sought out for? And, and, and who are the, and what are the themes of the patients that stay with you the longest? Well, um, certainly because of kind of where I've been, where I've come from, and sort of then where some of my referrals come from, the fact that I, I'm executive director at a treatment center at yeah. 180 Center now, um, a lot of addiction stuff is, is, is driving the bus. Yeah. And but the themes because I also work as a you know as a EMDR therapist and work with a lot of trauma What's that again? Uh, uh, eye movement desensitization we're gonna that, processing right? we're going to do that All together right. um, because I work at that trauma level um, the theme is the reason why I use these drugs is because of what happened then and I didn't realize the connection and now I want to find a way to you know sort of sort through that the, source of the wound. Mm-hmm. And then you also do like you're on the sort of uh, you know cutting edge with some of this new thinking around uh, uh, porn addiction, sex addiction, sex and love addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I think that's pretty important. And all of that, all of that is also linked to the to the trauma piece. You know, there's a, a number of people out there who are linking the trauma piece to to the behavioral addictions as well as the substance addictions, and that's kind of where I sit with it. And I also sit with it from the perspective of some of the role of spirituality and when i say that i don't mean like you have to get spirituality in order to get through this i mean that what the role of spirituality is in this whole dilemma you know like for some people it's they had spirituality and they lost it for some people spirituality didn't get them through that difficult time and wtf and then there's uh people who you know are atheist and so their that relationship to spirituality has some relationship to well how do you define it how do I define what? Spirituality. Well, I define it very broadly, and I define it um, as, I, I like to think of it more like on a Viktor Frankl sense, that it's a search for meaning, you know? So regardless of whether that's, you know, a, you know a, a divine being or the infinite, or there is nothing out there, still search Oh, you can do both of meaning. those things with Buddhism. Yeah, you play both sides. <laughs> that's what we like about Buddhism. Yeah. Well, I also think that uh, Ernest Becker was very, you know, sort of prescient in, in his assumption that that there is an innate desire uh, within the human mind and spirit, if you want to use the word spirit, to to feel part of something bigger, that there is some sort of almost genetic component to, you know, community, social organization, uh, to being alive and aware that you're alive that requires uh, a, a type of spirituality, mm-hmm. a, a type of... Uh, of transference onto something that's going to make you feel like your life has meaning. My my doctorate was uh, on the role of spirituality in the etiology and treatment of complex post traumatic stress disorder, which you know really sim- more simply said is you know what what is it about what you just said you know like that that mm-hmm. search that need you know what's there before the trauma, and then what does the trauma do to that spirit and to that you know desire that need that you know that that direction and then when a person is in treatment for that kind of trauma what are the interventions that work and what of those are spiritual in some nature or have some kind of you know relationship to and that. what did, what did you what did you track your wound down to 
Oy vey. Um <laughs> My well, you know, I've I've got a few markers. You know, like there's there's stuff from from birth. There's stuff from. I mean, literally for me, it it, it is from birth where you know my birth was quite difficult. And uh, I was an emergency cesarean after something like 35 hours of labor. You didn't want to come out. Didn't want to come out. Well, I was also, I was already tangled. I used to say, you know, I had the suicidal, you know, tendencies <laughs> in the womb. I was, you know, yeah. a lot of people have this, but I, I was, uh, um, the cord was wrapped around my neck. And, and you did it on purpose. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I thought that through. Uh-huh. But, um, and then I, uh, you know, when I, uh, came out i think i was blue uh-huh. you know and they revived me and my mom got a uh, an infection um as a result of all the botched work and so she, they kept her in the hospital and as a result of keeping her in the hospital they kept me in the hospital you know just to hang with my mom they had me in a nursery this is 1962 they had me in a nursery and then someone in the one of the babies in the nursery got sick and so they quarantined the nursery and so all these babies started leaving and they didn't add new babies because it was a quarantined unit uh-huh. and so i was left alone in this huge nursery for like a couple weeks uh-huh. and um there's a also a major uh, talk you know uh nowadays in the psychology community about attachment trauma and you know for for a baby to kind of like be in that situation for the first couple of weeks and and there's more that followed you know in terms of sort of the way that they were able to or not able to handle my mom's illness you know at the very beginning that left me probably with less you know not anybody's fault but you know a very early abandoned thing mm mm-hmm. And also, there's just the insanity of compulsive parents and whatnot. There's a little bit of that too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I just think that you you know you've certainly earned your stripes, uh, given that you know you you have a a certain amount of a, a long term amount of sobriety in a few different uh, areas, and and you have uh, very deep experiences with uh, uh, relationship trauma and uh, you know drug and alcohol stuff and creativity stuff, and I I just thought that if that and that we're friends i think that we should uh we should maybe take some emails mm. around some of these issues mm-hmm. and see if we can address them and as well as address some of my issues mm. uh you know the, the, there's one outstanding uh, you know which is you know relationship issues and, mm-hmm. and emotional issues and, and try to sort of integrate that into the fabric of what we're doing here all right are you into it i'm completely into it you feel good about what we did here I, I feel uh, like many of your guests probably feel like, wow, I can't believe I said some of that stuff. Well, you know, I'll let you think about it. Uh, and if you want anything out, we can take it out. You can probably just use it all and we'll see what happens. Isn't it nice to be, you know, uh, to to not have to turn your back on the past? And even given the line of work you've chosen, that, that your past sort of earns you a certain amount of credibility in what you do? It's uh, pretty astounding to me that Everything that I talked about today actually lends a great deal of credibility to the work that I do today, and it was completely painful and felt like the most pointless exercise in misery and just please somehow make this end. And actually, I think it makes me a pretty good therapist. But well, you seem good. That's what uh, that's what I like to say. That's what people say to me. You seem good, and they see a pre- they say that preemptively. My uh-huh. father will say that like like I'll say, "Hey, Dad," he's like, "You sound good." Right. I'm like, what are you judging that on? Right. <laughs> and they usually they're right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, "You all right?" And I'm like, "How the fuck does he know?" Mm. I just said one thing. Right. 
my mother like, Mark, you all right? <laughs> Fine. Can uh-huh. I just call? Get out of me. Mm. See, that, see that? now all of a sudden we're starting a session. It, that's how it always works with us, doesn't it? I know, but the, I gave you a lot of time here. You did. <laughs> is, is, our, is our time up? It is up. Do you take a credit card? That's our show. Thank you for listening, and please have a, a good Thanksgiving. If you don't believe in Thanksgiving or you don't have family or you're not where you want to be in life or uh, in geography, uh, take a second and, and really think about what you're grateful for because I'm sure you can find something and try to hang on to that at least for a day and see what that sprouts. All right, I am completely grateful to all of you for listening. And if you are in Seattle, I will be there at Thanksgiving and I will be there the day after Thanksgiving at the Neptune Theater uh, on Black Friday. That's November 25th. Uh, And I will also be at the Arlington Draft House in Arlington, Virginia, December 2nd and 3rd. And uh, take care of you and yours. And uh, be nice to somebody that you don't know and maybe feed a cat. I got to go feed a bunch of them. Okay, bye.